So we're working our way through the book of Ephesians, and um, we've been talking about how Ephesians is divided roughly into two halves. The first three chapters having to do with um, doctrine or theology, and the second three chapters having to do with um, devotion or ethics. The first few chapters having to do with God's unsurpassable love for us, and then the second three chapters having to do with the shape of our love for him. And in particular, Paul brings us now, through chapters four and five, there's been this walking imagery all over the place, like walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, Uh, walk in holiness, walk in love, walk as children of the light, walk not as unwise, but as those who are wise. And and now Paul kind of turns and he starts talking about relationships and the way in which they are transformed by the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And there's three relationships in particular that Paul identifies. It's this husband-wife relationship, it's this parent-child relationship, and it's this master-servant relationship. Three relationships that would have been seen as the center of the household in the ancient world. And so this is what is often called the household code, where Paul is giving instructions on how the household should be ordered under the grace and the kingdom and the truth of Christ. And this was really essential in the, in the ancient world because a lot of Greeks, going all the way back to Aristotle and, and, and throughout the kind of ancient Greco-Roman world, believed that the household was the central and fundamental unit upon which all of society was built. So if you want a, a well-ordered and flourishing society where the good of all was taken into consideration and flourishing, you needed to start with the household and make sure that the household was a place that was in order and flourishing well. And so by Paul speaking to these relationships, he's not choosing arbitrary relationships. He's speaking to something that would have been at the heart and center of centuries of conversation about what it means to be a society and what it means to be a people that are ordered towards flourishing. And one of the things that Paul does is he adopts some of the ways in which the culture talks about it at at first glance. He uses some of the language that his contemporaries would have used in talking about husbands and wives particular. We hear the language of headship and submission, and internally a lot of us cringe and recoil (laughs) right away because we bring a lot of emotional and experiential associations with that language. But what we'll discover, I think, is that Paul revolutionizes it from the inside. He transforms it from the inside, and he shows us how the kingdom of God brings about reversals that were totally unexpected in the ancient world. So we're going to talk about Paul's instructions to husbands first, and then Paul's instructions to wives. But before we even get there, I just want to take a little bit more time to talk about kind of some of the pastoral dynamics of us coming to this passage, and also some of the contextual dynamics of us trying to hear God's voice in these words. Pastorally, I just want to say first that we come to this passage with a lot of emotional association. Um, And that can be for a number of reasons. When we hear Paul talk about marriage, there may be some of us who are not married, and, and we always thought we would be, and we wanted to be, and we aren't. And so just hearing Paul talk about this vision of marriage as imaging Christ in the church itself brings up aspects of pain in us. Or there are those of us that um, grew up with a romanticized and idealized version of marriage that was given to us, um, (laughs) wherever context we grew up on, and then we got married. And uh, that got shattered pretty quickly. 
Um, and we discover that it takes grit and grace. And um, if you're going into marriage for it to provide you with happiness, you're going into it for the wrong reasons. Um, there may be people who have experienced broken marriages here in our community. Uh, this vision that Paul paints of what marriage is like is not what they experienced. There may be people that have even been a part of communities where the exact language that Paul uses here was used in ways that were weaponizing, that were abusive, that were silencing, uh, that were hurtful and painful to other people. And so all that is to say is that when we come to these passages, we just have these emotional baggage in association with it right away. I remember when I was living in Canada, I, uh, first couple months, I opened the door for a woman at the university I was going to, and she chewed me out for opening the door for her because she thought I was making a gendered statement, and she couldn't do it on her own. And that really took me back. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I felt a bit insulted, honestly, that um, I was trying to do something generous and it was taken that way. But as I got to know this woman and we became genuine friends in the next couple years <laughs> together, is what I realized is she actually grew up in a church context where women weren't allowed to speak in worship <laughs> and women weren't allowed to even pass the offering plates in worship. And so what I came to realize is for her, my simple gesture had this emotive experience attached to it that was connected to her concrete experience of her upbringing. And, and so what I realized is in order to relate well to my sister and for her to relate well to me, we had to be able to hold each other's different stories with grace and, and with patience. And then we had to be able to come to scripture together and, and say, Lord, we can't check our baggage at the door. We bring our baggage to you, but would you reign there too in that aspect of our lives? Would you bring transformation? Would you bring healing? And would you help us to hear the liberating and life-giving good news that you have for us? And so that's what we're doing this morning when we come to Ephesians chapter 5. And like any um, beautiful thing, and, and God created marriage to be a beautiful thing. The imagery of splendor is used here, which is the imagery of glory shining forth something that is beautiful of marriage. Um, the full majesty and mystery and beauty of something can only seen when it's, uh, can be, only be captured when it's actually seen in its appropriate context. So we were at a newcomer's dinner last night and I was kind of talking about the history of Holy Trinity and I was saying, um, I likened it to going, uh, seeing a cheetah in a zoo. That's a weird comparison, but. If you, I really like cheetahs, by the way. They're like one of my favorite animals. So this is why I'm talking about this. <laughs> You're like, why does this have to do with marriage? Um, we'll get there. Um, but if you go see a cheetah in a zoo, for example, you see it in a particular context and you're like, gosh, that, that is a gorgeous animal. Um, and it can be amazing to be up close to it like that uh, in that sort of way. But you, you can't capture the full beauty of a cheetah unless you actually see it in the wild and you see it go from zero to 60 miles per hour in a matter of two seconds. There's something about the context of it being in its natural habitat and its proper context that helps us capture the fullness of the beauty and majesty of that thing. And I think Paul's teachings on marriage are very much the same. There's two contexts that are really important, a literary one and kind of a historical cultural one for hearing the beauty and majesty of what he's talking about. The first is this literary context. The, the, the verse that, that we stumble over most is, is that verse right at the beginning, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But as Dennis mentioned last week, that word submit, that verb is not actually present in verse 21. 
It is assumed there, so it should rightly be put there in our English translations, but it's actually depending on verse 21 where the verb shows up, which is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so one of the things we discover is that as we come to this passage, it's actually contextualizing marriage within a church community that is mutually submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then if you back up just a few more verses to verse 18 in chapter 5, you realize that Paul's kind of exhortation that we submit to one another in humility out of reverence for Christ is actually just an outworking of his command to be filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the community. And then if you back up just a few more verses and you go to verse 15, you realize that Paul's saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit because he's just told us, walk not as unwise but as wise, for the days are evil. So how are you going to walk in wisdom, the knowledge and wisdom and love of the Lord as Christians in this world? You need to be filled with the person and the presence and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And what's it going to look like when you're filled with the person and the presence and the gifts of the Holy Spirit? It's you're going to be singing songs and hymns and giving thanks to one another, and you're going to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it's in that context that Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as the church. So what Paul is doing is, literarily, he is contextualizing marriage and husband-wife relationship within the context of living wisely in the fullness of the Holy Spirit in a mutually submitting community of Christ living wisely in the fullness of the Holy Spirit in a mutually submitting community of Christ. And the second context that's important is the, the historical cultural context. In the ancient world, when, when people gave household codes, and they're all over the place, you can, you can see them everywhere in the Greco-Roman world, it was, it was really common um, for the moral obligations and responsibility to be unidirectional. So, so notice, you have husbands, wives, parents, children, masters, servants. And often, the obligation was for the lesser of the two parties to have moral obligations and responsibilities to the greater of the two parties, but very rarely was it reverse. It was a unidirectional responsibility and obligation. And what we see Paul doing is he makes it two-directional in a way that would have been absolutely astounding in that day. And especially in marriage, he spends like three-quarters of his time actually addressing the husbands. So not only does he make it two-directional, he actually puts the emphasis on, on the husband's responsibility and obligation to the wife. And the second thing that would have been absolutely astonishing in that time is nowhere in Greco-Roman household code literature do we have an example of anybody ever telling the husband or the parent or the master, for that matter, to agape love the person that's under their care. To rule over, maybe. To make sure they stay in order, yes. To make sure they obey, yes but to love, agape love, no. And so just to read this right away, I mean, we hear it and we go, submission, and it, it sends off all these alarm bells in us, and, and maybe for some good experiential reasons, but if you're reading this in Paul's context, that's not what's sending off alarm bells. 
What's sending off alarm bells is what Paul is doing in talking about husbands and what they are called to do for their wives. So as we go into this, let's talk about husbands. Let's talk about what it means to be head and what it doesn't mean to be head. And then let's talk about wives, what it means to submit and what it doesn't mean to submit. And we'll kind of wrap this up a little bit. Husbands. Verse 25. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. See, I think the assumed posture when we come to this passage is that uh, basically husband and head as head gets to do whatever they want <laughs> um, and, and call the shots and be the boss is often what we hear. He has authority and the wife doesn't. He has a voice and the wife doesn't. But in the ancient world, this headship and body language functioned in a very particular way. It functioned in medical context, the physiological body and head. It functioned in political contexts of like Caesar being the head of, of, the, of the state or the, of the empire. And it functioned in household contexts of the father being the head of the home in a lot of ways. And in each of those contexts, the head was seen as having the privileged and primary position. They were the member of that body or organism that was most important to the whole organism being able to flourish as a whole. And so what ended up happening is there were requirements about if, if the head needs is the most important one for the whole body to flourish, for the health of the whole community, then the, the members of that body must do everything they can to protect the head, even to the point of sacrificing their own lives for the sake of the head. It's kind of like, you know, how the Secret Service goes, is it the, called the Secret Service? I mean, that doesn't sound good, but, but they go around protecting the president. Um, why are there, is there so much energy put into protecting the president, whoever they are and wherever they go? It's this sense that actually, as a whole community, it is in all of our best interest that the president does not die and that they are preserved and they are protected. And it would seem irresponsible if the president put himself in positions of harm, in harm's way, where he could be hurt or compromised in some way, because his role is actually to preserve himself and to be safe so that he can properly run the whole country. And so it was this sort of logic that was at work in the understanding of head and body in the ancient world. It was in everybody's best interest that everybody sacrifices for the head and the head preserves him or herself to make sure that the head can do the duty of overseeing the well-being of everybody. And that's why it's so radical when Paul says exactly the opposite is what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you as head to, to give yourself up for and to love your wife. And, and, and Paul gives two reasons why he wants the head to act in this totally countercultural and counterintuitive way. Um, I mean, I think one of them is just what we see in the Gospels of, uh, of Jesus. Jesus just saying, like, um, I've not called you to lord it over one another. 
the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so if we're going to be Christ-centered people, then that's, that's the way we're going, to, we're going to experience this. But notice how Paul then goes on and he, he says, he uses this language of sanctification. And in particular, at the very end of verse 27, he says, so that the wife might be holy and without blemish. There, Paul is using the exact same like Greek construction language that shows up at the very beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before him. And so what Paul, in a sense, is saying to the husband, you sacrifice and you love the wife. And in that way, you are aligning your will with the eternal will of God for his people. So God has called all his people from the foundation of the world that they might be holy and blameless for, before him. That is his will for them. And now he's saying, I want you as a husband to do everything you can to make sure that that will that I have for your spouse, for your wife, is seen to come to fruition and maturity and flourish. And so actually this headship thing is not at all about the husband just doing what he wants and getting his way and his will. It's about the husband aligning his will with the eternal purposes and will of God. And so the wife is enabled to become fully who God ordained her to be from eternity past. So there's that holiness that is the intention, the goal of the husband's love. And, and the second thing is unity. If you skip down to, to verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and he says, Therefore, a, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, and I'm saying it refers also to Christ in the church. It's interesting, Paul quotes the only place in the Garden of Eden, the only instruction that was ever given to Adam in how he was meant to relate to Eve. Notice what I just said there. <laughs> the only instruction ever given to Adam on how he was relate to, to relate to Eve was that he was to leave and cleave and pursue unity, one flesh unity with her. And so that's why it's so central for Paul. Why does the husband lay down his life and sacrifice for her? Because that is the means by which the husband pursues unity with the one that God has brought him into relationship with. And this, this just backs up into a much bigger picture for Paul. Because if you remember at the beginning of the book, Paul said, this, this is God's plan from the foundation of the world that in the fullness of time, he will unite all things in Christ, all things in heaven and on earth. So he's saying, where is all of history heading? It's heading to this cosmic unity and symphony of harmony in Christ's reign over the cosmos. And that's why he said to the church, it's so important that Jews and Gentiles are able to dwell together in unity because the church is meant to be a foretaste and sign of the unity that is coming for the whole creation. And that's why now he's saying it's so important that husbands sacrifice and, and, and seek the good of their wives and seek union and intimacy with them and unity because that concrete relationship is to be a sign and a foretaste of the eschatological kingdom to come in the new creation. 
And so it's this vast vision of unity that is motivating the instructions that Paul is giving to husbands. And it's also showing us that what Paul sees here in marriage is something that is much more than just marriage itself. It's meant to bear witness to the grand story of what God's doing in the world and where the whole cosmos is headed. So Paul says to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it's in that context that he, we are to hear the words that he gives to wives where he says, submit. So he says in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head even of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now I think when people hear the word submission here, there's a lot of connotations that come to mind, right? especially when you hear it with like that language of as to the Lord. Um, and so it can be this sense of like, am I, is, is submitting a worship, a form of worship? Is, is it meant to be, is a blind obedience? Um, do I lose all sense of agency and self in, in this? Um, and it's, it's just easier for us to avoid the language of submission, honestly, altogether sometimes. <laughs> But, but one of the difficulties is that submission is not just like an, this inner marriage thing. It shows up in the scriptures. Like, submit to one another comes in verse 21. And then also this language of... Um, one second, let me think about it. Um, lost my train of thought. So here it is. Um, I have a tendency when I come to this passage to hear, read that submission part and just like want to get past it as quickly as possible. But then I read other parts of the scriptures where here it talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ in a number of places. So submission is meant to be this whole church-wide, every Christian thing. And, and then I see places where it says submit yourselves to God. Uh, James, the mighty hand of God. And so, so this is actually meant to be a, a way in which I, I relate to God himself. And, and so it makes me then ask that question, what does it mean to submit as to the Lord? And what are the connotations that come to my heart and mind about who the Lord is that are shaping the way I think about submission? Am I, am I just thinking of him as some like tyrannical dictator who just wants blind obedience and nothing else? Or am I seeing a vision of God, of the Lord, that is more appropriately closer to the vision of God and the Lord that Paul himself has in the book of Ephesians? Where that language of pleroma, of fullness, shows up all over the place. Who is God? He is fullness. He lavishes us in the abundance of his kindness and love. He pours out um, grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. He is rich in love. It is my vision of God, a God who fundamentally at his core is so overflowing with life and holiness and goodness and love that he cannot help but be generous to his people and his creation. 
So much so that he would be only willing not to count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but to humble himself, himself to the form of a slave, even obedience to a cross, so that we might be raised to new, new life with him. And if I start thinking about the vision of who God is that Ephesians actually equips me with, then it, it makes me start having to rethink how I understand what it may mean to submit to him and what it may mean to submit to others and, and even within marriage. Because it reminds me that what God does is he just doesn't want a bunch of people that are puppets. He wants people that are willingly and lovingly devoted to him and enjoying him and, and trusting him out of the goodness of their hearts. And so when I try to think about it, I go, is this submission actually more voluntary? Not forced or coerced or demanded in any way? It, is this submission intentional? It's not, a, it's not a blind obedience. Could I, could I put it like this? Maybe submission is intentionally adopting a posture of humility and receptivity and trust toward another person. Could, could that be it? Intentionally adopting a posture of humility and receptivity and trust, and maybe I should add towards a, a generous and trustworthy person. <laughs> Is that a faithful way of articulating what Paul's on about? And, and I'm genuinely asking that question. So that Paul's ideal vision of marriage is, is a, a, a husband who lovingly gives himself for his wife and a wife who willingly and lovingly offers herself to her husband. I think there's a beauty to it. There's something compelling about it. But in our actual experience, is it realistic? <laughs> you see, in marriage, it's one of those places where people experience some of the deepest forms of intimacy, but they also experience some of the deepest forms of pain and betrayal and hurt. And one of the things I love about Paul's gospel is I think it, it surrounds all the goodness and all the pain of, of marriage with the tenderness and the forgiveness and the love of Christ. You see, self-giving is never an easy thing to do because we're always afraid that we're going to lose ourselves in giving ourselves to another. That's the one thing that God shows us. God gives himself and he doesn't lose himself. He's fully himself in his giving. And yet we shrink back from that giving, afraid that we'll lose ourselves. I think another thing is that, is that we know that in marriage, you know, uh, more and more layers of who you are and the complexities and, and brokenness of that get revealed. And there's this vulnerability to being seen and really known by another person in that sort of way. And there's a risk in any sort of vulnerability because there could be rejection. If I let that person in, there could be betrayal. It's like the deeper you go, the deeper the pain could be if things go wrong. People sometimes ask me, you know, when you give marriage advice, what's the, in all your years of wisdom? <laughs> Susie and I are coming up on a decade soon, so. Um, 
Lucas, uh, Lucas, when he got married a couple, um, a couple years ago, he, um, he was away for a week on his honeymoon and he came back to the office and we sat down for our staff meeting and he said, all right guys, do you need any advice? <laughs> um, When people ask me that, um, I always say to them, forgiveness. Um, go on a date night, sure. Um, never go to bed angry, sure, if you can muster. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's a million forms of advice that you could give to marriages, and they're, they're probably a lot of them are good. But do you know the gospel is the primary question. Do you know in your own life that you are profoundly broken and sinful before the Lord? And do you know experientially in the core of your being what it's like to be known and totally forgiven and totally received? Because that's what you're gonna have to do over and over again. What defines and shapes a marriage is not primarily how we steward one another's gifts and strengths, although that's really important. It's how do we hold one another's weaknesses and sins and brokennesses? And do they mirror the way in which God himself holds us? And so what I love about it is, is I think that when we come to this passage, Paul paints this majestic and beautiful picture of what marriage is to be. And oh, how does our world need a majestic and beautiful picture of what marriage is to be, whether we're married or not. But at the same time, Paul, in his, in his whole epistle, provides us with the resources, with the grace that we need to be surrounded with at every moment to live into it. It's chapter 4, verse 31, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. See, one of the amazing things about marriage is that um, Jesus says that there's going to be no marriage in the new creation. Hmm. There's something about it that speaks of eternal realities, but it's something that's also temporal. It's meant to proclaim to us and to the world that what we most deeply long for is the marriage supper of the Lamb, Christ and his church. And that there will be a day when there's no more marriage, but that's okay, because God will be all that we want, and God will be all that we need. Because the psalmist is right. In his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. My brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you as an imperfect husband, and in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.